From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before I welcome my guest today, let me mention just a few of the books that I've recently read and recommend. First, my friend Joe Palazzato mentioned Colm Toybin to me a few years ago, but Toybin's new novel, The Magician, is my first exposure to his genius. The novel, a dramatization of the life of the great German writer Thomas Mann, covers World War I, the rise of Hitler, World War II, the Cold War, and exile in the United States and Switzerland. Mann was the winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature and a public man with a well-hidden private life. Another really great selection by James Conrad of the Golden Notebook Bookstore in Woodstock. Next, The Sympathizer by Viet Than Wen is also a great read and a heartbreaking one at that. The novel starts in April 1975 in Saigon. The parallels between the chaotic end of the American presence in Vietnam and the recent chaotic end of the American presence in Afghanistan are astounding. A beautifully written and tragic novel, an indictment of the French, the Americans, and the Vietnamese themselves. The book was suggested to me by a new friend, a Vietnamese-American herself, who was resettled in Utica, New York, at the age of three. Great suggestion. Thank you, Trent. Third, every year on the second day of the Rosh Hashanah holiday, the narrative of the biblical figure Hannah and her struggles is read in the synagogue. Each year at my synagogue, Central Synagogue in Manhattan, a congregant is called upon to relate a story from their own lives that brings a timely meaning to the Hannah story. This year, the congregant who spoke was Chin Julie Wang. Chin Julie was born in China and at age seven moved to Brooklyn with her parents. For many years, they suffered through a very difficult immigrant experience in America, poverty and hunger in the midst of plenty. Chin's memoir, Beautiful Country, recounts the struggles of her undocumented family. It's illuminating, moving, and actually heartbreaking. Highly recommended. I'm also continuing to read the Hemingway short stories, one each week or so, and I'm continuing to read War and Peace, both with Princeton professor Yi Yun Lee on the schedule she laid out in her book, Tolstoy Together, 85 Days of War and Peace, and also over the course of the entire year at the pace of a chapter a day, along with Andrew Lewis and Brian E. Denton. It's a lot of reading. Message me if you can help me figure out why I'm doing this. Finally, I read and learned quite a bit from a book quite different from all the others I've mentioned. This book is 200 Years of American Financial Panics, Crashes, Recessions, Depressions, and the Technology That Would Change It All. 200 Years of Financial Panics was written by our guest today, Tom Vartanian. I've known Tom for many years as one of the leading financial institutions lawyers in the country and present at the scene of many of the financial crises or financial panics faced in the U.S. over the last several decades. Tom is the former head of the financial institutions practice at two major law firms, the former general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board and at the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation. 
Tom is also the former executive director and professor of law at George Mason University's Scalia Law School program on financial regulation and technology. Although I'm very interested to hear what Tom is now reading, the primary purpose of this discussion is to hear about Tom's recent book. Tom, I'm pleased to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Howard, thank you very much. It's a terrific honor to be here with somebody who I know so long and respect as much as I do you. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Your book covers financial panics in America going back to 1819. And you touch on many themes that are of great importance at this time, which is not too long after the 2008 financial crisis and on the heels of the recent crisis born out of the pandemic. You write that each major financial crisis in the United States since 1819 has been the result of the collision of six different elements. Managed economies, overheated markets, the psychology of keeping up, loss of confidence, unanticipated events, and market fomentation. While I'd be happy for you to comment on each of these, let's start with the role of confidence. At one point, you write, confidence, or the lack of it, is the most significant element of any properly functioning financial system. Confidence draws its power from the psychological trust in the integrity of the government, currencies, payment systems, products, institutions, people, or markets. You also write, with the emergence of cryptocurrencies and other fintech products, The most fundamental of financial relationships hangs in the balance, the emotional relationship between humans and their money. One of the themes that's present in the financial panics you document in your book is what you refer to as monetary confusion, problems caused by lack of confidence in the currency of the country. Comment, if you would, on whether there's a risk that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies will contribute to monetary confusion in the current environment. What do you think? Well, Howard, you've sort of zeroed in on on a quintessential point that I make throughout the book, and that is the importance and criticality of confidence. Confidence is a fleeting factor in almost every one of the financial crises. But to answer your question directly on Bitcoin, let me say this, that what's happening now in a lot of ways, and Bitcoin is not the only factor, but what's happening in terms of the the ballooning effect in the economy from government spending, the Fed having an $8 trillion balance sheet, the splurging of cryptocurrencies reminds me of what happened in the 1920s as we ran up to the Great Depression when speculation and recklessness was just rampant. But the problem with that is that nobody sees it as speculation and recklessness until the bubble bursts. Because on the way up, the ride is terrific. Right? Everybody makes money and everybody enjoys the ride up. And on that roller coaster, you get to that peak and you get to the top and you say, oh no, we've got to go down. And that's when the other part of the psychology of crises kicks in. And that is everybody runs at the same time. So the phenomena here is that everybody runs to the peak at the same time and everybody runs for cover at the same time when they see disaster coming. And that's what causes crises when everybody does it at the same time. Uh, And I think if you look at Bitcoin, you have to ask yourself a few questions. When is it in the history of this country, the financial history of this country, that anything that had no intrinsic value earned market capitalization of about $2 trillion? So the market value of cryptocurrency today, including Bitcoin, is a little more than $2 trillion. And the fact is, is that there is no intrinsic value in those commodities. Now, 
You can call them money. You can call them commodities. You can call them securities. Fact of the matter is, is they don't really function as money. And there are going to be lots of issues uh, that impact whether or not they do actually become money. But what they are doing is they are creating a form of currency confusion that emulates what we saw in the 1800s when people didn't know whether to use gold, silver, banknotes, greenbacks, or, or whatever the government uh, was favoring at any particular moment. And so I think there's two problems here. Number one is the absence of any intrinsic value in crypto products like Bitcoin. Um, and number two is the absence of any scintilla of prudential regulation. 10 years, well, now 12 years into Bitcoin's life. And that underscores, I think, another critical problem here. And that is a regulatory system is completely out of whack. And that is we regulate banks because they're banks. But anybody else who touches the financial services system in a way that could affect stability, who's not a bank, we don't regulate. And that makes no sense. And why does it make no sense? It makes no sense because we're regulating with a structure that was created in the 1930s. And you know and I know in the 1930s, we didn't have hedge funds, we didn't have private equity funds, we didn't have money market funds, and we certainly didn't have Bitcoin. And so if we're going to figure this out, we're going to have to figure out how to regulate everything that touches financial services, not just banks, in a fair and equal way. Not for the regulators to decide who wins and who loses. It's their job to figure out how to regulate everybody in a fair and equal way so everybody gets a fair shot at the marketplace. And unfortunately, as long as we have a regulatory structure that was developed in the 1930s, that's not going to happen. So you, you talk about government regulation quite a bit in the book, um, and you discuss a number of instances of government actions that have resulted in unintended consequences, problems, and risks. At, at the very outset of the book, you write, this is a story about how, how government policies cause or contribute to financial crises. With that backdrop, what is it that the government should do to provide regulation of one kind or another of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies? Yeah, so uh, I guess what I would say is this this book was born out of financial crisis. Uh, as you know, I was the general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board and the FSLIC in the savings and loan crisis. And I saw in real time how the United States government and policies that it articulated albeit altruistic policies to increase housing in America, created the savings and loan crisis. And it didn't just create a part of it. It created the entire part of the savings and loan crisis. And, and so that drove me, uh, I mean, I guess that and my career, which included being an undertaker for about 500 banks over the period of time that I practiced law and was a regulator. And, and so all of that drove me to, to sort of consider the mistakes the government had made and how they could fix those mistakes. Because if we're going to have a safe and secure system in the future, whether it includes Bitcoin, Tether, or whatever it includes, we have to have a, a, a more intelligent, safer, and sounder regulatory system. So that's why I went back in history and I said, let me look at each one of these crises and diagnose it from the point of view of the government's involvement. And what I found, Howard, was basically that the government in every crisis had made one of two mistakes. The first mistake was managing the economy and taking a position that was based on politics or social goals. And the fact of the matter is, is what the government's always learned when they've done that is 
the government can't control the market. And if they try to control the market, all they're doing is interjecting the market with a perverse set of incentives that usually corrupt the market and end up in some sort of crisis. The second thing I found is the government all too often ignores financial factors in the marketplace and sits still when it should be regulated. And that's what's happening here, I think, with respect to Bitcoin. I mean, I, after my eight years in government and all of the things I've done that involve financial crisis, uh, you know, I'm not a big believer in large government intervening in the financial services sector because of the problems that it creates when it does. But it's got to be smart enough. It's got to be intelligent enough to know when something is happening in the marketplace that is a sea change that they have to be involved in to oversee, to protect not only funds that you and I have in the bank or in any investment, but the safety and stability of the financial infrastructure of the country. And so far, that hasn't happened. And so what I would suggest is that the government ought to be figuring out how to regulate, whether it's Bitcoin or any of the other 7,500 crypto currencies that are out there, in a way that applies pieces and forms of prudential regulation that they have applied to banks to effectively control the risk that they're creating to the economy. I mean, it makes no sense for a bank to have to go to a federal regulator and negotiate with that regulator for a year to introduce a financial product or do a transaction. And somebody like Facebook can just basically say, I'm going to issue money and do it tomorrow. I mean, there's, there's no sense in that regulatory structure. Why? Well, because Facebook's not a bank, so they're not subject to regulation. But I'll tell you, if Facebook issues Diem, the electronic money or digital money that they want to issue, that's going to have an impact on financial stability. It's going to have an impact on the economy in, in massive ways. And to say that there shouldn't be some form of prudential regulation on their involvement in the financial stability of the United States and that all of it should be focused on banks is, I think, foolish. And let me give you one short example that sort of makes my point. Uh, you're aware of all the statutes between 1932 and 1940 that were enacted after the Great Depression to regulate financial services. Of course. At that time, banks controlled about 95% of the financial economy through deposits, uh, loans, assets under management. And so gearing the structure towards banks made regulatory sense and it made economic sense. Well, fast forward to 2021. If you just measure bank deposits against assets under management held by all other financial institutions, including private equity, hedge funds, insurance companies, banks now are basically 35% of the financial services market, not 95%, 35%. So what does that mean? It means that we are devoting 100% of our regulatory prudential resources to regulate 35% of the financial economy. That makes no sense. You, you mentioned in the book the need for more sophisticated uh, analyses uh, within the government. You mentioned also the failure by the government to use available data and technology to regulate the financial system. How do, you, how do we get over that hump? Yeah, so that's sort of the uh, climax of the book where I basically say we have got to turn the system from looking backwards to looking forward. And what do I mean by that? Well, I was a regulator for eight years. 
And what you do as a regulator is you regulate by looking backwards. We examine a bank and we say, where you've been the last three years? And you criticize for what it's done the last three years. But by the time you get that criticism to them after an examination, you're five years down the point from when the act occurred. And we're living in a real-time technological world here where it makes no sense to be talking about what happened three, four, five years ago uh, and not understand what ha- what's happening to the bank in a real-time basis. Second thing I realized is that when a bank's analyzed and when our examiners used to go into financial institutions, there was never a sense of analyzing them with respect to what was going on in the macro economy. It was also a, always a micro inspection of what that bank looked like, what its financials looked like, what its ROA was, what its interest spread was, you know, all of its financial factors. But the fact of the matter is, is the future of that bank is linked to two things, how well it manages its balance sheet and what the general environment of the U.S. economy looks like. So that bank could be the best bank in the town, but if the economy deteriorates, that bank's not going to be a safe and sound bank. And so the second part of this analysis is the government ought to be looking at financial institutions from the broader picture of financial stability of the economy and the financial system. Well, how do you do those two things? The way you do those two things is exactly what I did for financial institutions, representing them for 40 years. That is helping them use technology to run a better organization. Well, why aren't the regulators using technology to run a better organization? Why aren't they using artificial intelligence and algorithms against big data that's been compiled over the last 60 years to produce analyses that is more predictive and less reactive? I can tell you as a regulator, And as a private practitioner for all these years, I have never seen the United States government or any financial regulator being prepared for a financial crisis. Think about that. Ask yourself, what are we paying so much money for to have this regulatory system that is never prepared for and never anticipates a financial crisis? Given the technological tools that are available, artificial intelligence, algorithms, big data, and we're on the way to quantum computing, it seems to me that it's sin. The financial regulators haven't been given the financial resources to use those kinds of technological products, to use artificial intelligence, not to make decisions, but to run predictive scenarios against which they can use their judgment. And I can tell you, when I was the regulator, we sat down and manually, manually thought through scenarios, manually thought through how to deal with failing financial institutions. But we've got the ability now to do all of that in a way that provide the people who have the best regulatory judgment on this planet, the information and the tools to do that and not taking advantage of that. The regulators are not using artificial intelligence. They're not using predictive technologies. The closest we've gotten is in Dodd-Frank with the use of stress tests and living wills, trying to predict a little bit about the future. But the bottom line is this. If we continue to regulate financial institutions, whoever they are, only looking in the rearview mirror, traveling 60 miles an hour, uh, we are going to have another accident. We've got to look forward through the front of the car, not just in the rearview mirror, in terms of being able to anticipate, be prepared for, and possibly avoid future financial crisis. And so why is that? Why is it that the government is not using the available technology that private industry is using? Well, I think 
how regulators, the government's always 20 years behind in terms of technology. I mean, I've never, never seen them not be several decades behind. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I think like everybody, like every business, like every person, they get stagnant and caught in the way that they do things and they think that's the way it always should be done. And number three, I think, and this is probably most importantly, is a resource problem. I'm sure to, to convert the control of the currency, the FDIC, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, the NCUA, the Federal Reserve Board, to the kinds of technological efficiencies that I'm talking about would cost literally billions and billions and billions of dollars. Now, you know and I know where that billions of dollars comes from. Normally, the bank regulatory agencies are not funded by taxpayers. They are funded by the assessments paid by the bank. So imagine the following scenario. The new control of the currency or Chairman Powell at the Fed announces that every bank's assessment is going to go up 200% so that the Fed or the OCC can buy all of these new technological processes to better regulate them. <laughs> right. That will go over like a lead balloon, number one. Number two, I suppose most banks who can particularly community banks, would basically say, thanks very much, we're converting to a state charter where we don't have to pay that kind of enormous assessment. So we've got a financial problem, we've got a stagnation problem, and it's just going to take some strong leadership and some creativity to get this done. But what I say in the book is why I believe tenuously, and that is what it will cost to modernize the financial infrastructure in this country is probably less than what the markets lose in one day in a financial crisis. Right, 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 right. But uh, you also mentioned in the book the role of politics and lobbyists, and the hurt, hurdle is very high to get to a, a new regime for regulation. Oh, it's incre incre incredibly high. I mean, look, the status quo is a very, very strong factor in any uh, dynamic of change. I mean, look, the banks want it to stay the way it is. Why? Because they know how to deal with this system. They don't know how to deal with a new system. Right. Um, everybody wants it to stay the same. And, you know, there's lots of infrastructure, a lot of political lobbying, a lot of capital, all devoted on the status quo. So everything you've said in the book, everything you've said in this discussion, uh, raises tremendous concerns. But what you write about cybersecurity towards the end of the book is even more frightening. You write, among other things, quote, new technologies in the hands of people bent on destruction is the most pressing issue we face when it comes to protecting the country's financial institutions, economic infrastructure, and democracy, close quote. What are some of these cybersecurity risks? It sounds frightening even before you get to your discussion about China. Yeah. So, you know, I, I read uh, a lot uh, to prepare for writing that book, because the last third of the book is about how technology changes financial services and should change the financial infrastructure in this country. Uh, and the next book I'm writing is on the uh, the threat of cybersecurity. And I have concluded, after reading, what, maybe 50 or 60 books on the subject, talking to people, interviewing people, that it is, in fact, the most existential threat that we face today. And, and what I, the way I boil it down is as follows. It is foolish, if not insane, for us to continue to digitize every inch of data and every ounce of financial value and put them on networks that we know are insecure and we know are getting more insecure each day. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. 
if you read, uh, and you know, you talk about books that I've, uh, I've been reading, well, I've been reading Cyber War by Richard Clark and Future Crimes by Mark Goodman, and a great book by Nicole Perroth, who is a New York Times reporter called This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, and a really fabulous book called Click Here to Kill Everybody by Bruce uh, Schneier, which basically play this out. And I play it out in the financial context in my new book, uh, but they play out a scenario that is just basically extremely frightening because it is what I just said. And that is, there's no uh, cyberspace coast guard. There's no early warning system. There's no defense mechanism. There's no one consolidating all of the defenses that we need to make sure the entire electric grid and financial grid is not taken down tomorrow morning. And, and what you learn by reading the experts, and, and Richard Clark, who served three presidents in the White House, and his war on cyber war, I think, is, is very instructive. What you learn is, is that if any nation state wanted to do that today, wanted to bring down the financial infrastructure and the power grid in this country, they could do it today. Now, they don't do it because of mutually assured destruction. They don't do it because destroying the U.S. economy, sort of shooting yourself in the foot. That's probably why China doesn't do it, even though it's got the capacity to do it. But ask yourself the following question. As technology gets cheaper and gets into the hands of more and more people beyond nation states, into the hands of criminal cartels, into the hands of fanatics, into the hands of terrorists, they won't play by the same rules. And that's what the frightening part of this is about. When these tools and these toys get into the hands of people that will use them just for the point of using them and take down the financial system, you walk up to an ATM and it won't work. You, you put a credit card, you swipe your credit card and it won't work. You go to your bank and you see a zero account. You call your broker and he says your account was wiped out. What do you do? Who do you call? Who are the cyber police? And, you know, it's just a, we've built this vast new virtual world. I call it a network society in my new book. Uh, and that we're totally unprepared to deal with it because there's no rules. There's no governance system. And there's no order. And there's no way of enforcing that order. And it seems to me that we are at a crossroads now where we have the ability to say, wait a minute, let's stop doing this and let's take a different direction. And that's what the new book is about, basically a different direction to prevent us to getting farther out on this limb uh, and really getting to the point of no return. It sounds like your book and the others you've mentioned are sounding an alarm. Uh, the question is, who's going to listen and um, yeah, how long that will take? Well, you know, that's, that's sort of where I end. The, the, I've got a first draft manuscript of the new book, Howard, and where I sort of end is by saying there are solutions and I lay them out uh, and they're not impossible solutions. But they may be impossible without leadership. And unless we get leadership on a global basis and in this country, we have no chance, I think, of, of, of changing the direction and the path that we're on. And that's the frightening part. So I, I don't know if um, the United, United Nations is a um, source of strength, source of leadership here, but, or, or whether this is a dem in the U.S. a Democratic or a Republican problem. But it, sound, it sounds more global. It's not, it's not just a problem for the United States. It's a global problem. Yeah, right, right. And, 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 and the book I'm reading today uh, or listening to today is, is chilling. And it, it goes to the point you made about China. It's called The Digital Silk Road. And it, it's by Jonathan Hillman. It just came out. And uh, it is chilling because it lays out in a very, very 
sort of detailed fashion what China is doing to lie, steal, and cheat its way to world domination using uh, the digital Silk Road. And, you know, I, I don't think these people are writing these books to scare us. I think they're writing these books because, as Nicole Perlroth says, hoping that in a world that ignores most of these warnings, some of them will get through and penetrate and actually make a change. And that's sort of why I'm writing my book with regard to the financial services world and the cyber threats that are out there. Well, I, I, that's a hopeful note. Um, I, I think that's right. We generally need to find the right chord to strike, uh, find whether it's somebody in the, the U.S. government, the, the Congress uh, at one level or another, or in the admin, one administration or another, to recognize the problem and to take a leadership role. But, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, the, and the Congress has impaneled, for example, the, the uh, Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which did a fabulous job releasing a report in March, all of these threats. And it is basically a 150-page plea for something to be done. I mean, I, it, it's laid out there in black and white by a commission of government people, military people, private sector people, who have put together a tremendous report Angus King was one of the co-chairmen from a senator from Maine. Yeah. And it is, it is, you can't read it without seeing it as a plea for help to basically say these risks are out there. We need to do something. And it, it has like 55, 58, 60 recommendations there that are broken down into even smaller parts. But it's not like we don't understand what the risk is. It's not like we don't understand what's happening. But the risk, of course, is that this report, like every other commission report that's ever been written in your, your life and my life, will be left on the shelf and unattended to. That's a big risk. Hey, Tom, this has been great. Absolutely fascinating. Love the book. Love the, um, this discussion and particularly, I'm going to call it a hopeful note, just because there is focus at the highest levels of the government. And uh, keep up the pressure. Keep up the drumbeat. Well, Howard, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure uh, to be with you. Thank you. Okay, we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, bye. Follow us on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com, on Instagram and Twitter, at bookwormsitw, and on Facebook, at bookwormsinthewild. And message me to tell me what you're reading, or email me at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie, as always, provides overall creative direction, and Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. Carol, of course, is my muse. Two-and-a-half-year-old Jake continues to encourage the podcast, as does Jake's baby cousin Francesca, now six months old and another great source of inspiration for us all. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of my guests, although not today. Thanks to the great anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast, and thanks as well to A.J. Falari, who is working on the editing with me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.